WV Uncommonplace. This podcast is a variety podcast that houses numerous series to cover mental health, empowerment, podcast framework, and various intimate theories to get to know the hosts. Along with occasional movies, reviews, and dives in pop culture with our event podcast episodes. The Uncommonplace digs into bringing guests on that stories don't fit the mold and are very different. WV stands for the great state of West Virginia and every quarter we cover something in West Virginia. Stacy and myself JR are your hosts so please come along for this venture to Uncommon Place. We wear both red. <laughs> I'm wearing like a burgundy. All right, everybody, y'all know at the first beginning of the show, sometimes we have a little bit off uh, different things going on. So, you know, I always like the mic to be red. I am JR and I'm the host of West Virginia Commonplace. And I am coming back from a long hiatus of not doing interviews. I've been doing those little rise and fall episodes about the movies and stuff like that. We all know that's attached to the little famous uh, sponsor of my company, uh, of the show, Anchor Nebula. So I just do a little quick tie in for them just for that. And I have a special guest here with me today. And she has an incredible name, and I chopped it up once. And she was nice enough, we're on a Zoom call. She uh, put the pronunciation of her name. Her name is Van Shell. And her last name, I ain't going to chop that up because she told it to me before. <laughs> it's it's Sant Deke. Yes. And, if I, and if, when you see it in the show notes, the way you're going to say it is not the way I just said it. <laughs> so the most nostalgic question that comes on the show is, who are you? So let's start it off real quick with that, Van Show. Please tell us who you are and why you are here today. Uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking, do we even do we even have enough time to chop that up? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, like you said, you you already introduced me by name. Um, you know, I am a public health, um, a public health expert by day, and then I'm a writing coach editor by night. Um, where I help editors, I help businesses, I help, you know, individuals like amplify their voices, like in industries that, you know, sometimes don't make space for them. Um, and I would say that, you know, everything about my journey definitely came from, you know, the way that I was raised in a Caribbean country because I was born here, but I grew up in Haiti. My family's from Martinique, Haiti and France. And um, living on a, on a small island definitely shaped the person that I am today and the work that I do and that level of activism, uh, because I'm a firm believer that, you know, that everyone's, I mean, I, people will always tell you, or some folks will say, well, you know, if it's not affecting me personally, then it's not my problem. And that's not true. Whatever affects your, your neighbor can indirectly or directly affect you at some point. And so that definitely um, drove me to pursue a career in public health. And then later on, you know, really explore my gift in writing um, to help people out, to help people um, create the life that they want and brand themselves in a way that they're proud of in the industry. Okay. Okay. And that's a lot to carry with you. So your work spans various areas such as public health, personal development, mindfulness, and community health. How does your passion for these diverse topics come about and how do you see them intersecting with your overall mission in life? So my overall mission in life is really to um, 
to make sure that people never feel alone when they're going through like, you know, tough situations. I mean, you covered a lot of topics um, and one of them, you know, I'm really passionate about mental health, um, which actually was one of the reasons why, like, I am on your show, because I know that you've had guests in, in the past. Uh, who talked about these struggles. I know for me, it started like when my mother passed away. But again, we can date it back to, ch you know, to childhood. And, well, not the childhood, like the transition from my home to coming back to the States um, and living with people who are not family members. Um, I think... Um, I think when you when you look at the common denominator between all of these, we always have to talk about the residual trauma that follows, you know, when you go through, you know, tough circumstances in life. And that's the reason why I wanted to focus on that. And that's what really drove me to go and pursue right now. You know, I just finished my first semester in a doctoral program. Okay. Well, you know. congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You know, focusing on public health leadership, but with an emphasis on behavioral health policies. Cause I think to be honest with you, um, some of the policies that are out there, they not tailored, you know, for black and brown folks. Um, and I think, you know, it, you know, when when we talk about policymaking, we gotta think about who's included and who's not included. Um, and it's not just about black and brown folks. I mean, we can we can break it down even further. People with disability, like what does that look like? I mean, I go to certain buildings because I travel a lot as well, just like you. And then you go into into certain buildings and you're like, okay, like, yeah, I can walk in there, but what about someone with a wheelchair? What about someone with like, you know what I mean, crutches? Yeah. Uh, what about a blind person? Like, it's just, I think if nothing else, being part of this program definitely opened my eyes um, to certain triggers. You know, there are certain things we take for granted. And I think this program is helping me see like, yeah, we don't live in a system that's equitable. So so just to answer your question, that's the reason why I decided to pursue this this degree, you know, focus on these topics that you mentioned, which is very much tied to my mission of um, you know, supporting people, you know, in in whatever way I can. Okay. And the things that I heard in there was about inclusion and exclusion. That is a hard process across the mental health, public health, and personal development, mindfulness, and community health. Because like you said, as ethnicities, um, be it whatever you are, um, we all come from different economical structures, social backgrounds, and right. those things. And, and that's the thing, like, like me, for instance, I'm from Virginia originally, but I'm from what you would call the middle of middle class. So where I'm from, I had cousins that were not part of the middle class. So mm -hmm. it's even different in the education and the, the the thing that I was talking about. I had a Facebook post and I was talking to people about this. You know, people grow up in this one mantra that we always heard. Um, some people grow up in this thing. It's called um, a home or a house. A home is a place that has love. A house is a place that didn't have love. It had some facades of love or some fragmentation that looked like love. Mm -hmm. And, and, going through my psychological evaluation of my life you know mm -hmm. I lost my father lost I'm sorry to do a little talking on here but I lost my father at a young age in 1994 at the age of eight yep. and the females in my family not the males the females grabbed me up and embraced me with this kind of love that made me the type of person I am today I'm not going to say I'm any better than anybody else but they made me understand compassion 
and empathy in a level that I would not understand from a male. And I'm not taking away from males because males can teach that and all that. I'm not doing that. And audience, I don't want y'all to take it that way, but. No, no, no. This is all part of building community. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And my thing is, is that that house of love that was built from these women and these women and, and I'm telling their size because it make it'll it'll make you understand more. These are voluptuous women. These women are six feet tall, three hundred plus pounds, five foot eight, three hundred. They're solid. They could be a football team. You wouldn't <laughs> intimidate them. So they they were strong yeah. by build and they were strong inside. And with our religious background, our Christianity, the values that were taken, uh, and just to tie that in just a little bit here, uh, the way that we were raised with that system of thoughts, our institute of thought was not set the same way other people were because we did two things. We rationalized emotions. We rationalized that you have to stop and put yourself in a position where you understand what your mental health brings to the table to yourself, people around you. And like you said earlier, how it relates and correlates to other people. So that indirect, direct thing. So I wanted to tell you real quick, I got to give you your flowers on that one. Cause when you did that, that warmed my heart up in a prior conversation in our little pre-call we did ahead of time. You know, you can see where these things kind of just come together and they make sense. So I want to tell you, thank you for that Van show. Um, like that, just that, that warmed my heart. Now, you have many titles to your name. I'd like to jump into you being an author real quick, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right, um, so, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So the <laughs> so, um, thing here is you wrote Journey to Redemption. You contributed to Passport to Self-Discovery Volume 2. How do you believe your writings contribute to the broader conversation about health, personal growth, and society's method of well-being? And the reason that I said the society oh. method of well-being is because as a male, a female, or any way that you feel that you are inside any type of gender or however you fit yourself, it's a mold and a model like you come out of a machine. It's like the chocolate bunny you get at Easter. Mm -hmm. There's a black and a white one. So you got to be either one of those and nothing else. Yep. So how, how, did, how did that... How does, how does that conversation come about, you know, in your writings? I think for me, and I'm writing this down because you talked about health, you know, personal development and social models from society. But again, remember that the social models from, I mean, when we talk about health and personal development, they are working under the umbrella of the social models of society because society, you know, has its own definition of, you know, how we need to conduct ourselves you know, in relation to these topics. And so for me, when it comes to my writing, um, you know, this is something that's always in the back of my mind because, you know, those things are very much integrated in who I am. And I think that if nothing else in my writing, I have had to address um, the whole notion of deprogramming my mind, you know, from what society expects me to do or how society expects me to behave you know, vis-a-vis -vis like my fellow, you know, brothers and sisters when it comes to my personal development and health. And I think that even as I reflect on my writing, um, when I was, when I was talking about like my, I say that my journey as a Peace Corps volunteer, and then reflecting on my experience living um, because again, you said that you were, you know, uh, part of the middle class. So I grew up in an upper middle class family, but I was surrounded by abject poverty, you know, uh, in Haiti. 
And so it always dawned on me that, um, you know, when we're talking about personal development, it really has to focus on not making the same mistakes that were done in the past uh, in terms of how people were treated, in terms of like, you know, uh, the fact that some people didn't have access, you know, to certain health services and being part of the movement of like, you know, closing that gap and, and building bridges of understanding so that we can create, when I said earlier, like more inclusive policies. But that was always something that came to mind when I was writing. Um, but it's it's hard sometimes, you know, to speak on behalf of people who are going through a challenge if you didn't go through it yourself. So it's right. like me, you know what I mean? Because like when I was in Senegal, I was living in a rural community um, and literally, you know, it's, and it's facts, like, you know, these people lived on a dollar a day. You imagine what that looks like in West Virginia or where I'm from in Gaithersburg. Like it's, it's, it's impossible because right. my county is extremely expensive. And I suspect that it's the same where you at as well, even though it's a rural area, like you said. Right. And so, um, I, I had to, like I said, deprogram my mind and say to myself, okay, I may not have had the experiences, but what are some things that I can do? What are some skill sets that I have that can help bring awareness to these issues, you know? And then, then to tell the story from their perspective and not from my perspective as the narrator, um, that's extremely important. It's, for example, it's like books, you know? Um, if I wanna learn about a country, most likely, I mean, again, and forgive me, but I'm going to go and buy a book that's written by a native of that country True. and not necessarily from someone who literally came, you know, went there as a tourist. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> like, I'm not going to do that because I know, I mean, it's not that their, their information or their perspective is not important, but they haven't worked. They haven't walked in the moccasins of these people for a long period of time to understand the culture uh, you know, the, the institution, um, you, you said the, um, it was not institution of change, but you were talking about, you know, the Institute of thought. Yes. The Institute of thought. Right. Um, and the fund and the fundamentals that really make up the culture of that country. So it's, it's all about perspective, but I know that it's very important when you're going to tell a story like I did in that, uh, when I contributed to that book, uh, to tell it from the perspective of those who are victims of the system and not and not come off as a personal hero, because I wasn't a personal hero. I was just someone who came in. I had a set of skills to use. I developed projects that eventually that helped them in the long run. Um, but ultimately, I'm not I'm not a savior, you know. Yes, I do. But you're an advocate. I am an advocate. Yes, 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 yes. Advocate. So, like I said, you wear many hats. And you were involved, and you are involved with a group that I'll let you pronounce for me. Uh, <laughs> Miss Fami Care? I mean, uh, yes. Oh, my yep. goodness. Yes, Miss Fami Care. Let me tell you, okay? Can, can, can I put a little, <laughs> can we put a little put in there? So, um innovative approaches you all had in implementing um, this tactic of addressing health equality and community well-being. And doing that, that shows your commitment to public health leadership, in my opinion. 
But yes. you know, we have to do the research. I got to do the research on you. So <laughs> with that being said there, tell us a little bit about that and tell us about how y'all address healthy quality and community well-being. Because here's the, here's the thing, and, and this is me being in West Virginia, 1.5 million people are in West Virginia. 90% are Caucasian. Okay. The other half is broken down to whatever. Now, mind you, we are bordering Ohio, Pennsylvania. And let me do this for the people in Maryland. Instead of saying Maryland, I'm going to say Merlin. Because that's what yeah, they say the, out yes, there. That's Merlin, it, Merlin. Merlin. <laughs> Merlin. So you have people that branch off from those areas that come here that are different ethnicities. But West Virginia is strictly, it's a white place. I'm not going sugarcoat. Right, no, I've been to West Virginia. <laughs> right. You stand out. <laughs> right. I mean, they, they treat me like an exotic fruit out here. Shout out to everybody that does. And if you don't, you don't do it to my face. Now, here, healthy quality in the cities is fine. But when you get to the rural areas, healthy quality, they will tell you, and I don't care if you're black or white, if your money is not lined properly, they're going to tell you, hey, or your insurance is not right. Or if you don't have insurance, they're going to be like, hey, you need to go elsewhere, go to the free clinic, which free clinics are fine because we have some very amazing ones in the state. Mm -hmm. And the community outreach about diabetes, because I just found out in August I'm a diabetic, stuff like that, you don't get in the rural areas unless you're in a city. You don't get that kind of the backing that your company does. So how do you all address it? And, and tell us a little bit about what could other people start or try to attempt to do to help themselves in these issues. So when we're talking about, you know, insurance coverage, you do know that, um, you know, sometimes you can have insurance, but you can be underinsured. So it doesn't cover everything. Um, and you brought up a point where what about people who don't have their insurance, right? Or just flat out don't have the money. They can't afford health care, you know, whether it's through their employer or just like paying out of pocket. Um, I think, like you said, you know, using the free clinics is definitely a start. But then at the same time, you know, um, and this is something I've seen happen in the country is really the development of coalitions, you know, to advocate and uh, kind of get the word out on what what's missing, you know, what I mean, what's missing in terms of gaps in healthcare, you know, and for them to bring that, you know, statewide. Um, and that's a whole new, that's a whole other conversation. But I know that for Miss Fami Care, funny enough, when I started that nonprofit, which by the way, right now is on pause because Again, I'm realizing that there's certain endeavors, <laughs> at least even my ventures, it required, you know, it required me to go and get this terminal degree because that's how people, unfortunately, you know, take you a little bit more seriously and you can get a little bit more funding. But the purpose behind Miss Farming Care was actually to help people cope with, um, with grief, grief support. You know, because after my mother passed away, it was hard for me to even get insurance. And it was hard for me to even get, yeah, to get insurance, not just for me, but for my brother at the time. Um, and then also um, basic things like being food secure. I mean, those are basic things. And so when we're talking about, you know, what people can do, I mean, it's also important not to address the whole entrance situation, but also like, are you food secure? You know, so these places can, you know, provide, you know, sources, um, 
you know, besides food pantries, you know, to, you know, to meet people's needs. Because when we talk about public health, it's not a monolithic entity. Like we can't just talk about health. Like what is health? Like health also includes being in a safe environment. You know, it, it includes like having health coverage. It includes being food secure. What, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because public health is, is not, it's not just focused on health. It, it depends on your definition of health, to be honest with you. Uh, but yes, for Ms. Fami Care, that was the purpose, you know, and it started doing well in terms of like, I had um, a few organizations like, you know, share with me resources and I posted it on the website. I was talking to people and I still do that, even though I'm not doing it under Ms. Fami Care. But um that was the whole purpose of it, to be honest with you. I mean, what it could be later on, I don't know. But um, but you do raise some great points that, you know, I could hopefully address, you know, when it go it, you know, it's back back again. When everything comes full circle again. When it, everything comes comes full circle. Because literally I was knee deep into it for three years. Like I had, I'm telling you, I had all the organizations lined up. Um but then like when they start seeing the credentials, they're like, oh, you know, you need to have, you know, they they were more interested in talking to someone with a DR, like a, with a doctor degree. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go get that. But don't you tell me afterwards when I get that degree <laughs> that you're not going to be able to like, you know, um, you're not going to be listening to me or you're not going to be able to provide me with the support I need in order for me to help communities in need. But yes, no, I even remember people reaching out to me too, like just saying how it was helpful because there were some resources um, that um, in, there were some resources in Maryland that they didn't even know about. And I brought that to the fore to them. So. Hey, uh, thank you for that. Cause people are going to definitely need that. And I thank you not allowing someone to say oh you're a paraprofessional because because it, 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 when when it happens to me in certain instances like a podcast somebody said i'm a paraprofessional i can go with that all day whatever but in my field of work like i told you what i do nobody's gonna tell me that you know obviously i got the degree like you do like you're getting completed um so i thank you for that and i thank you for letting wait me know what that. are you what are your degree like what is your degree on my degree is crazy i'm a logistics management oh nice yeah. So like, you know, what I told you with what I do, nobody can just come at me and be like, oh, I'm like, nah, I got it right there. You know, I pay the exactly. cost to be the boss, pay the cost to be the boss and you are the boss. Exactly. So that's one there. So I want to thank you for that. And, and I and I thank you for telling that part of the story because some people get overwhelmed when they hear no. Um, when I hear no, I heard this in the last interview and this guy said this and this was crazy. When I hear no, this is my new phrase from him. It means new opportunity. Yes. Yes. He said that, I, I told him, I said, I'm going to steal that from you. He said, no, nah, you can borrow it. But no means new opportunity. So, yes. Uh, shout out to like, Tyler. <laughs> and even like the word failed, like the Nelson Mandela, you know, because I can't take credit for that, like defined it as first attempt in learning, you know, just because you're not getting what you would want right now doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That's why it's it's that's why I kept talking about those coalitions, like trying to find people who want to see those changes and talking to these people. If these people actually work in those free clinics, ask them. Ask them. Cuz that's what I'm that's what I've learned when I went to West Virginia. Like there is 
their pockets, their their pockets of communities. And so, um, and it seemed to me people help each other out, right? So ask around, uh, because that's what I did for Miss Family Care. Some of these resources were not on these uh, clinics' websites, you know? Like I had to go and dig for information. So, And, and you did that and it helped the world out now. You've, yes. written on, you've written on various platforms, including the Good Man Project, uh, Thrive yes. Global, Medium, LinkedIn, among others. How do you approach writing about complex health topics for diverse audiences? And what impact do you hope your writings will have on readers in general? Because here's the thing. LinkedIn is someone's Facebook. It's the business person's Facebook. It's yes. the paraprofessional. Um, Tumblr is somebody's Facebook. Snapchat somebody's Facebook. And when I use Facebook, because that's a reference to social media, me and you know MySpace, but we that not that's not the best way that, to do it. So that, that was that was a long time ago, my friend. <laughs> yeah, so everybody has a, a special place to find things. And when I find something on LinkedIn, I'm gonna read it more uh diligently than I read something on Facebook or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So so how do you um approach writing these complex health topics about diverse audiences? So before I write, what I typically do is conduct focus groups, like mm -hmm. conduct interviews with people um, and ask them if they know someone who has, you know, if I was going to talk about depression, like, you know, do they know someone who would be willing to be interviewed to talk to me about their experiences, which goes back to what I said in terms of, you know, writing, writing the story from the perspective of the the people who are victims of the system uh but even as i'm using the word victim maybe the person may not even see themselves as a victim and then when the person shares when these people share with me their stories they also giving me permission because i have to ask permission consent you know if i can you know use excerpts or anecdotes and all of that um, and that's how I typically write about complex topics, but I also make sure that I test my own assumptions on the topic, because again, it's going to be different if the, the narrative is going to look different if, um, if I, if, if I didn't go through depression. And so I have to test my own assumptions and I have to also ask people for grace, you know, so that I can learn from them, like what the day to day is you know, um, living with depression. Um, and so that's how I typically, um, like that's my approach. Okay. Uh, I'm sure like there are various, there are various approaches out there, but typically I found that conducting focus groups, interviewing people has been extremely helpful in writing about these health topics, these complex health topics, and then backing it up with evidence, obviously. Um, and, and that's, you know, obvious, you know, you, you, you do, you use Google Scholar, you use any other platform to find, you know, recent studies about these, um, these topics, these themes. Right. Or you ride down to Baltimore and just go to John Hopkins. That's what, <laughs> yeah, you can do that too, but you know, but I, I'm always careful now. It's like whenever people, even like when you watch the news, when people say something to you, you know, be an informed consumer, don't just, don't just focus on what they tell you, go and do your own research. But even then, even when you do your own research, you come in with biases. So that's what I always have to, like, I struggle, not, it's a struggle. Like when you're writing, you got to. You got to think about your biases. 
You know what I mean? Right. So that you're not grouping everybody together. Like just because someone tells you that they have depression, but what the what it looks for them, how it feels to them from zero to 10, they may say it's a 10. It may feel like a five for someone else, you know? So that's what writing should do. And that's why, you know, my business pathway coach writing aims to do it's is help writers explore those nuances and not just see life as black and white, you know? All right. So going further into that, like I said, your writing covers all kinds of stuff, emotional intelligence, race, culture, and mental health. And in doing so, there's a hard thing that we have to deal with. And me, you both have to do this. And I have to do this even with the podcast, cultural sensitivity and inclusivity in your work. I said that I jacked it up on my own country. And with me, for instance, I have to do my show in some instances, not so much as, as a show for people of color. I have to do it for a show of everyone. And then there are certain topics, and I don't take February and do it all the time, but I do it year-round. I cover what happens to us in mental, our mental health, the empowerment, um, the social ladders that, that we have to climb to get to certain places, because not everybody has to climb them. Because like being in the middle class, there were certain things that I didn't know that my cousins went through that I had to learn about later. And the cultural sensitivity that I had to come up with is, is that you have to treat everything like it's revolving and evolving. You can never treat it like it's something that's just stagnant. So people are always growing and changing and like a circle, basically. A circle mm -hmm. keeps getting bigger and bigger. And when it's getting bigger and bigger, it's more stuff coming into it. Or if it's getting smaller and smaller, because it can evolve or revolve either way, you got to kind of figure out how to keep that sensitivity and how you include people in your work and in your message how you would express it to them, like how you want them to feel about it to a certain degree. Now you can't dictate exactly all of how they feel and what they think, but in some of the things that I do, I make sure that it's clear and it's open for everyone. So inside everything that you do with your writing, how do you take care of the cultural sensitivity? Oh, that's a great question. I would, I always go and, and do some research on how, um, what's already out there where it sits in the public consciousness, like what are people already doing in terms of inclusivity in that person's culture? And then ask someone from that culture, okay, what is, what is the gap analysis? I have them do the gap analysis instead of me doing the gap analysis. Um, and in a way it kind of creates this, it almost feels like doing a public awareness campaign, right? um where you helping the person you know figure out like kind of you know seeing like where the compromises are and how inclusivity um or cultural inclusivity is happening because even within cultures you can have you know racial divides you can have other types yes. of divides ethnic divides and all of that and so it's very interesting like it's very interesting we were talking about that earlier it's like you don't want to group everyone together Right. Um, based on a common theme because you know like i don't know um how it was when you went to school but people always i've noticed that humans love it's kind of like the census people love to group everyone in one box because it's convenient yes. and it allows them to organize folks in those different systems but here's the thing even when i looked at the census i'm you know there's a part where i'll say you know, it'll say white, it'll say black. Um, and even for the black section, I'm like, but I identify as Caribbean black, not as an African-American. Where is that located? You know, it's just, right. 
You, you see what I'm saying? And it's the same thing for white. Are you Hispanic white? Are you non-Hispanic white? But even then, when we're talking about being culturally inclusive, how far can we go with that? Because even with the Hispanic white and non-Hispanic white designation, could that also be seen as a form of divide? You right. know, like uh, as, as society trying to divide you know, these two groups as to say, oh, one of them is more superior than the other based on the color of their skin. Like there's so many, we could do this all day. <laughs> yes. And so that's why when you say like, you know, how to create it, like, it's not, I don't have like a straight answer for you other than I always go first trying to figure out how do these things are addressed? How are these things addressed in that person's society? And then try to help help them figure out, like you know, what is some what are the missing elements that need to be addressed? All right, and I like that. Now, there's a part of the show where I pay homage to a news magazine called 2020. Barbara Walters, John Stossel, and Diane Sawyer were for poignant interviewing skills, and Barbara Walters did what she did. She was a legend. John Stossel was a comedian. And when I do these questions, they're more personable questions. I mean, I ask fairly decent questions sometimes, but when yeah. we get to this point of the show, this is where we got those hard-hitting questions. So, Van Shell, are you ready? Yes, I did, I'm ready. I, right. I see I got it right. I was like, Van You got Shell. it right, Van Shell. No, you broke it down. <laughs> yeah. I, look, look, I put the Van and I put the little hyphen and I put Shell on there. Yes, I yes. I, I, didn't, I didn't do it all smooth. Uh, so, so here we go. <laughs> How do you see the future of public health leadership evolving, especially concerning issues of health equality, diversity, and inclusion? And then the second part of that question is what changes and improvements do you hope to drive in that field? Like what is your, what's gonna be your contribution in them areas? I think for me, my contribution is definitely going to lie around the policymaking piece, the legislation piece, uh, but also making sure that, you know, we have, we always have community buy-in because I think what people don't know is that sometimes, even when I read up on, on these issues, sometimes legislation is passed, but then, you know, there's not, it does not reflect it does not reflect the challenges and the personal opinions of, you know, constituents. And so I think that that's where I would, you know, definitely be able to make an impact because I'm a people person. I love to, you know, build consensus in among different groups uh, and teams. And so that's where I see myself, especially in the behavioral health space. But there was one, there was, you know, because this is a two-part question, like the first question, do you mind repeating that again? Yeah. How do you see the future of public health leadership evolving? I think public health leadership can evolve if if people come to the conclusion that they don't know everything. I think that's the crutch uh, when it comes to public health. People are coming in and giving the impression that they know that you know that they are uh they know everything and they're not willing to question, you know, what they don't know. Um, and I think like when we talk about where I see public health evolving, I mean, yes, public health leadership would evolve if people, you know, question, question their assumptions, 
Uh, take the time to really understand the challenges, the ins and outs. Um, and then also trying to figure out if they are addressing the right problems instead of just checking a box. Because sometimes that's what happens. Like you go into meetings, even even in, in our nine to five, you know, you go into meetings and there are a million problems to solve. And people want to tackle all million, all of these million problems, but not all of them may make an impact. And so I think that leadership in public health would greatly benefit from people, you know, solving the right problems. And the only way that you can figure this out is by talking to the people who are actually going through it. Okay. And I like that answer. Now, as a person that is pursuing a doctrine in public health leadership, this is something that you did, that you're doing, you said, because you have to be at that status quo to get the endowments and the grants and everything else that you, well, not the grants, but I'm just going to use that as an example. Yeah, good. we can talk about grants because it's, you know, Miss Fami Care and all of that at some point. Yeah. Right. So once you have this degree and you're on the top of that plateau, because, you know, it's that rising action right now. The climax happened at right here, and that rising action is going up. No falling action yeah. yet, because falling action isn't going to happen until everything's back in the order that you want it to be. What's the next step after you have this degree and you're back working with your nonprofit? Like I, you know, like I've mentioned to you, I think right now, because we're looking, you know, four years, we're sort of putting this out into universe right now because I just completed my first semester. Okay. <laughs> so I'm kind of the new kid on the block, uh, but not so much because I've been doing this work for, you know, more than 15 years now. Yes. I would hope that once I get this degree that it enables me you know, to enact support, you know, for public health policy legislation, um, encourage community partnerships, um, and really foster and mentor, you know, future, you know, public health leaders, you know, to implement, you know, changes and transform the lives on residents on a large scale, but specifically in behavioral health. Um, because I think that, um, that line it has become very nebulous. Like you have people who are being underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed. You have this opioid crisis that's still, you know, reoccurring, is especially in schools, um, in Maryland. Um, and even though there is a conscious effort to bring um, support and help uh, in terms of the medication, like treatment and screening, in schools, it's not enough. It's not enough. Um, and so I think that I would want to be part of the movement of helping train, you know, people who can uh, address these issues at the local level, because not everything can be resolved at the state level and the federal level. Like we need to mobilize ourselves as well locally, um, you know, to to um, reduce these health disparities. Okay. And so informative. I like that. Now, a portion <laughs> of this show, um, I, I do... It's called the testimonials from what I've gathered from you, what I know about you now from pre-call and everything else. So tenacity, that's a, that's your gold chain you wear, tenacity. Yes. Um, advocate, that's your bracelet. You wear that. Your pinky ring, your <laughs> pinky ring, which is the strongest thing, in my opinion, your pinky ring is the word absolute. Absolute. Yeah, and the reason that tell me have, more. 
the reason that you have an absolute to you is this. You made a choice. You had a tragedy happen to you. You were traumatized with this. So your absolute is an absolute truth here. Yes. When your mother passed, it put you in a predicament that you had been involved with, but it, it, you were actually feeling the force and the issues that were going on here. Absolutely. So you had to have some tenacity because people were knocking you down and mm -mm. weren't giving you the right avenues. So you went out there, you went on your Google Scholar, you did what we're taught to do. You investigate the elementary school skills that we are given, not the middle school, not the high school. You took the simplest thing that we learned in kindergarten and first grade, research, search, research and search. People forget that they go hand in hand. They're two different things. You yes. search, you search, then you make research or you find research and then you search more into it. And the whole theme of everything you've been saying on the show has been the research Find your narrative. Your narrative might not always be right in certain areas, but become full circle with everything. Not everybody has the mental fortitude or the aptitude, not fortitude, let's go to aptitude, the aptitude to pause, to stop and rationalize, because rationalization is something that in this world is a dying art. Yes. People have realization, but not rationalization, realization all day long. You rationalize, hey, this is not right. And like anyone that knows anything about marketing or advertising, the marketing portion of your mind said this, I know how to help by gathering more research and then showing this, relaying it. The advertiser in you said, I have experience. I have reason that you should listen. I have been in your shoes. You can relate to me because I can relate to you because there is a relation. Yes. That that simple context is lost in society because people look at the convenience store style of things. They want it convenient. Mm -hmm. They don't want they don't want to have to go through the whole food market and find everything they truly need. They want to go to Walmart or Target and get it fast or even the ski mask way. And you provide a system, written things that can help people, a service, a community within just you, no one else, just within you. Yes. And that's something that you need to be proud of. That's something that you, when you get up in the morning, you see the mirror back behind you, you look at yourself and you say, hey, I'm doing this. I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for everyone. And people are noticing. You don't take an accolade from it in the position of like, oh, I'm doing this for gratification or because of what mm -hmm. happened with my mother. I'm doing this because of the selflessness and because of the one thing. When I needed the help, the help was not there. Exactly. Exactly. So and and sometimes it can make you, it could do two things to you. You could be in a situation like situations like this and it can make you better or it can make you bitter. And I chose to make it, I chose uh, for it to make me better. Uh, a better friend, a better advocate, you know, uh, a better support system for sure. Um, because again, like even as we're, even as I was listening to you, um, it's not about the quantity of conversations you have, but it's about the quality of conversations you have with people. 
Um, and that's so critically important when you're building alliances, when you're trying to make a way for yourself when there is no way. Because I can tell you back in 20, what, 2015, because, and people didn't know this, but I came back from a three-year stint, you know, from Peace Corps in Senegal, West Africa. Okay. So literally, I'm not only reacclimating to the U.S. culture, but then I was literally advocating for my mother at the hospital that she was in. Uh, because I was afraid. I was afraid that if I left her, that they would treat her differently because of because she's a black woman. And so um, I practically lived in that hospital, you know. Um, and so it, it was tough. It, you know, I didn't see an end in sight. Like I literally had to go and take a retail job, you know, because I couldn't find a job. So I was pretty, pretty much unemployed for about a year. Uh, things were not looking uh, promising. Let's just put it that way. And I think that um, the 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 words that you used today, like the tenacity, like, yes, you know, we have, unfortunately, we live in a society that doesn't always welcome us, but we have to still, you know, <laughs> we have to still insert ourselves in, the, in those conversations, because if not, you're always going to have a situation where, you know, you have people talking about, you know, they talking for you, but they not, they not in your, they, they, they can't relate. They're out of touch. And that's what I aim to do, you know, even, you know, even before I, I decided to go get this degree is to always be in touch with the people who are going through the struggle. Um, and that's a tough call, you know, sometimes it's going to be, sometimes it's going to be a hit. Sometimes it's going to be a miss. Uh, but you have to keep trying and keep building those, forging these relationships and, you know, God will lead the way. So, and I want and I want to definitely thank you so much for that. So eventually we have made it to the end of this episode and, and I am going to have to extend this offer to you. Uh, outside of this, we're going to have to come back on because we have to come back for part two and maybe part three. But one thing I want to challenge you with right now, you've got the skill, you've got the know-how. You need to produce a podcast. I just want two episodes a month starting off. You got. You know, time. you're not the first person. You're not the first person who told me this. Like three or four people, even my dad told me this. I need to yeah. listen. Yeah. Yeah. You need to take the steps because you got the materials. Right now, you can do it. Um, it only takes five minutes to learn how to add from YouTube, uh, edit from YouTube <laughs> Academy. So on that note, I have Banchel Sandik with me, and I am JR, and we are signing off. And the one last thing I want you to do for me real quick, Banchel, yeah. please tell your family an expressive thank you for all they have done and the creation that has been brought on the surface. Uh -huh. That is Banchel Sandik. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, you know, and the same goes for you too, because, you know, the fact that you have this podcast and like I told, like I told you before I got on your show, I was listening <laughs> to some of your episodes, like earlier episodes. And that was like some time ago. Right. But it's interesting how everything came full circle. Um, uh, when I was like pitching myself, I was just like, wait a second. Like I have, I have listened to these episodes before. And I know it helped me out a lot when I was going through my own set of challenges. So what you do, my brother is incredibly important. And, uh, and I'm telling you, it's the light in the darkness for some, it, it definitely was my light in the darkness. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. So <laughs> we will have her back on the show. We'll have to get something worked out behind the scenes. <laughs> Um, somewhere in this new year and bring you back yes. one. But 
I need you to take that challenge and make a podcast. Yes. You, listen, tomorrow you got some time. You got three hours tomorrow that are free. Right? You <laughs> yes. got three hours free. So what would it be like you in front of the camera right now just recording? Make five minute, make a five minute show and get your 10 points across. Now, if your 10 points are two minutes a piece and it's 10, then you made a 20 minute show, right? Yeah. So if you make the points less, then you got the five minute show. So if you're doing 10, you've already got a 20 minute show. So right there, you just did math and equation of a podcaster. So you got it. So on that note, I'm JR. We have to get up out of here. Um, in the show notes, you will be able to find every single thing you need to find about Van Shell and all of her endeavors and, and her future endeavors. And the great thing about a podcast is it's, it's everlasting. It's evergreen. So everything that she's telling you about and has said in this episode will be golden for you to find. And I will make sure we have every single social media link and link that makes sense business-wise to get to her. So once again, I'm JR. She is Van Shell, And I am, or we are, signing off. Bye, everybody. Bye. Please follow WV Uncommonplace on Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter, TikTok where we have some great content, Facebook, LinkedIn, hit up the merch store at onecommonplace.square.site, join the email list from the website, and rate, subscribe, and give feedback from your favorite podcatcher. And lastly thanks for listening and tune into the next episode.